Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. In our series through the prayers of the Apostle Paul, we have arrived at perhaps the highest prayer. And you are about to look carefully at a prayer that is full of the strongest, most vital, life-giving language. As we mentioned last week, if you were not here for last week's message, when we dealt with Ephesians chapter 1, then I would encourage you to go listen to that message on the podcast. Because I mentioned there that Colossians is a summary of Ephesians. Not all, but much that is in Colossians is found in Ephesians. They were written at the same time while Paul was in prison. They were written to a similar group, first generation Christians. Paul had led the Ephesian Christians to Christ himself. But Epaphras had started the church at Colossae and Hierapolis and perhaps Laodicea. Paul, however, had started several churches in the area of Ephesus. And this letter of, to the Ephesians is larger probably because it was meant to be delivered to several churches. As we mentioned, there are no personal references in the letter. There's nothing about him being in prison. There's nothing about his travels. There's very little about Paul in this letter. Compare that with Galatians, where Paul is constantly talking about himself. Or Philippians, another prison epistle, where Paul is talking about himself often. Colossians, Paul has never even been to the church in Colossae, and yet he still talks about himself. But here in the letter to the Ephesians, he does not talk about himself. I have a commentary on my shelf (coughs) with a 50-page defense that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And the reason they have to include that 50-page defense is many scholars unbelieving scholars, take the book of Ephesians and say, it's not like his other books. There's no biographical references. And then with that, which is true, they jump to the conclusion, therefore Paul did not write the letter. So I have a a commentary where the man takes 50 pages to show Paul wrote this letter. And what I'm going to show you tonight I think if you have read the letters of Paul and you see this prayer, you're going to immediately tell this is the same theology as the Apostle Paul. And it's even the same wording as the Apostle Paul. Now, a few comments at the very beginning before we get into the prayer requests of this particular prayer. Colossians, in the single prayer in chapter 1, verses 9 to 12 has the same elements that you see in Ephesians 1, 16 to 19, and again in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, that we're about to study. That is, when Paul writes Colossians, he takes those prayers, mingles them together, and says, this is how I'm praying for you, Colossians. It's similar, but not the same. 
Like two brothers, you can say, I know they're in the same family, but you're also different. These prayers are unique, the ones between Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, and Ephesians 3. But there is a beautiful similarity. Anytime you look at almost any objects in the world, you can look at the similarities or you can look at the differences. And if you are a thoughtful, observant man, you should catalog what are the similarities and what are the differences. John Frame helpfully tells us that any two things outside of God can be compared. They're all the same in what? They're all created. So you and the worst sinner in the world have at least this in common. You're both creatures made by God. You and a dog have this in common. You're made by God. And here Paul has this wonderful letter. I would like us to see some similarities between this letter, I'm sorry, this prayer, and his previous prayers. And then let's see the unique prayer requests that Paul brings here. Let's read the passage and then go into that task. Verse 14, Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this cause... What caused Paul? Well, if you've been following, one of the proofs that this letter is written by Paul is that it is tightly connected with conjunctions. What's the first word in verse 14? For. That's a Greek conjunction binding it up with with what comes in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. In Ephesians 3 verses 1 to 13, he explains that the church of God was a mystery. Some commentators will say, what was a mystery was the fact that God would save the Gentiles. No, that's not enough. What's a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3 is that there is a group that God is going to baptize with his spirit and unite to his son. Abraham did not know the baptism of the spirit. That started in Pentecost. And there are the majority probably of theologians who believe The church began in the Old Testament. But how can we look at Ephesians chapter 3, which tells us this was a mystery. The church is one of the glories of God's divine plan. In fact, you could say the pinnacle of God's divine plan. And it was a mystery to those in the past. And it's revealed today. And you are a part of it. Have you thanked God Just like you mentioned, you were kept safe on the road. How many of us are kept safe on the road and don't notice it? How many of us are living at a time at the pinnacle of God's glory in Christ during the church and we don't even notice it? We've never even thanked God for being alive at a time in the church. Now, in verses 1 to 13 in this chapter, he's going to tell us this was a mystery hidden from those in the past. And in verse 10, one of the most remarkable verses in the New Testament, he says about the church, angels are gathering in a a group, a cluster, to look down at the church so that they can praise God for his grace and wisdom. That means when our church gathers, when a biblical New Testament church gathers, as our Lord Jesus said, when two or three When a small church 
gathers, but it's a true biblical New Testament church baptized in the Spirit, united to Christ, as he just explained in chapter 3. When that happens, angels are around looking down. And if you've got a group of 3,000, 4,000, 5, 30,000 people gathered together, but they're not truly born again, and they're not hearing biblical preaching that exalts Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Angels aren't concerned with that at all. Recently, I saw a short video of a very large religious assembly in America that meets in a sports stadium. And a man took a Bible and stood up in the middle of that um, activity. And while someone was at the front uh, speaking to God, the man stood up and held up his Bible. And as soon as the person said, Amen, he began shouting out, Turn to Christ! Turn to Christ! You never hear about Christ in this place. Most of you are lost and you don't even realize it. There's no Christ being preached here. If you don't have Christ, you're lost. It's not a church. This is an entertainment venue. When have you ever heard Christ? When have you been born again? And he just starts preaching the gospel until the ushers come and drag him out. And he doesn't say anything bad about them except you need Christ. Is Christ here? Brothers and sisters, I don't know that place. I've never been there. But I will say this. If it's true that Christ is not preached there, even though they have 30,000 people and a sports stadium, even though they have the most professional musicians, and even though the world says they're wonderful, and even though the pastors published 25 books and sold millions of copies, the angels don't care about that. Except perhaps the fallen angels who are there inspiring them. Now... That's the background for verse 14. I'm sorry, I was trying to read the text. Let's go back and read it. For this cause, for what cause? The church, the glory of the church, because of the glory of church, I bow my knees. What do you do when you bow your knees, but you get ready to pray? I'm bowing my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, verse 16, that. Does your translation start with the word that? Now we're about to read, and as we read, I want you to underline every time, or circle, every time it says that. Verse 16, that. He would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, number one, Put a little number one by this one. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Verse 17, does your Bible begin with the word that? Mark it down. That Christ may dwell in your hearts. And there's number two, Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. Do you have another that in verse 17? Mark it down. There's number three. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And then in verse 19, do you have another that? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer. He bows on his knees so that God would give something. 
Are we all clear about that? This is a prayer. In verse number 14, he's bowing. And in verse 16, he's bowing with the purpose that the Father would give things. What do we call it when people bow in front of God, hoping that as a result of their bowing and their words, God would give them things? That is a prayer. It's a request. It's a supplication. This is similar to the prayer in Colossians. Because you'll see in verse 16, strengthened with might. Do you remember that from Colossians? We were praying in Colossians that God would give us knowledge. And the very next verse says, so that you would be strengthened. There it is. It's a similarity with Colossians. But then he's going to change. And he's going to show us some differences. Now, it is unusually difficult in these prayers to tell exactly what is a request and what is a result. Up to this point, I've been following a very simple pattern for telling what is his prayer and what is the result. And the pattern has been when he says, I pray that, anything that comes after the word that, I count as the request. Okay? So in Colossians 1, he says, I pray that you be filled up with this knowledge. Okay? Then the prayer is filled up with the knowledge. And then he would change it and say, in order. And then whenever he has the in order, I would say, okay, those are the results. So when we were in Colossians, we saw one, I pray that, and then five in order to. Does that make sense? One request with five results. We saw that same thing happen in Philippians. We saw something a little different happen in Ephesians 1 that we're praying this month. So in Ephesians 1, maybe you've seen this. And I mentioned to you last week, there's one request, but it's stated two times. Once in verse 16, once in verse 17. I'm sorry, once in verse 17, once in verse 18 in the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. And then there are three results after that. Now, tonight when we come, I'm going to give you four different requests, all flowing from that word that. You see, I'm following the same model. But someone might say, there's not four different requests, there's one request with three results. So commentators disagree on this, and it's because of something that you'll see here. And the answer is, I'm not really sure, but I don't think it matters either way. Whether it's one request with three results or four requests, we know this is the way he prayed, and we want to pray this way. Are we, are we, are we clear on that? So with that as our Basis. I'm admitting up front, if you go and read commentators, some might say there's a request with three results. Some are going to say there's four requests. My answer is I'm just going to follow the vats and follow four requests. But it could be categorized differently. And if you hear a man preach on this and he, he says, well, there's actually one request. Don't say, ooh, my pastor's wrong. Or don't say, well, you're wrong. Just take the gold and diamonds and, and be amazed at them. And don't be bothered at all with the details. Let's see these four requests. We go to them. Number one, verse 16. I bow my knees that. 
Number one, he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. That's our first verb. It's going to be the first request. To be strengthened with might. Strength is a particularly important request because we are notably weak. We are weaker than we realize. If you've been reading this epistle, Ephesians um, 1, 2, and 3, you would have seen just how weak we are. And if you go on reading the epistle, in chapter 4, he is going to explain how very weak we are. He says things like this in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He goes further and said, you used to walk just like Satan. He'll say that. He's going to give a string of things in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Of how weak you are. You are much weaker than you realize. And then he's going to give a little break and talk about salvation. And come back to the same theme. He's going to say, before you were born again, you were without God and you had no hope. You were a stranger and an enemy. An enemy means, in the context of Ephesians 2, you were not merely not in Christ. You had a gun on the other side shooting at the good guys. No. Paul teaches very clearly. Weakness is all part of our makeup. It was part of all of our makeup. We're too weak to overcome our own sinful temptations, aren't we? We're too weak to grow at the rate that we should grow. We are like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know that wonderful book? We are like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who just after he passed by the cross, just after his burden falls off, he gets a certificate, he gets his new clothes, he begins walking along, and then as he's going up the hill, he gets tired, he sits down to rest, and he falls asleep. And when he should wake up, he turns over and says, oh, I'm just going to sleep a little, little longer. And then John Bunyan puts in the mouth of Christian when he does wake up and he sees the sun setting. And he goes on as fast as he can. And it says, as the sun set and he's got to walk along in the dark, Christian says what words to himself? Oh, sinful sleep. Look where you brought me now. That's us, isn't it? That's us. Don't deny it because everyone else sees it's true about you. It's true about me. We are very weak. Which is why Jesus says, come to me. All who are weak. He doesn't call the strong. Like the song we sang tonight, not the righteous. Not the righteous. And if you say, well, I've just got to fix some things before I come to Jesus. All he wants you is to feel that you need him. That's the only Requirement Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke 5, 31 and 32, I did not come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Oh, we're much weaker than we realize, but the Father has this power. Friends, we have no, no real understanding of how weak we are. But as the, uh, the old English poet said, the proper study of mankind is man. We would learn a great deal if we would study ourselves. Look carefully into your own soul and see how long your New Year's resolutions last. We're on the 16th, aren't we? How many of you have kept your New Year's resolutions perfectly up to this point? 
How many of you didn't even make a New Year's resolution because you've broken them before and you thought, ah, it won't even help me? Do you see how weak we are? We're so weak that when we make our own plans and try, we give up. And then when we get discouraged that, we say, ah, why bother even trying anymore? We are a very weak people. And the Spirit applies the power right to our souls that comes from God. Which is why later on in the same letter, he's going to say, be strong in the Lord. Isn't it great the way Paul, that's a command, by the way, it's an imperative. Do this, you must, I command you to be strong. He commands them in Ephesians chapter 6 to be strong. And in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I know how weak you are. I'm just going to go right up to God and say, make these people strong. In fact, that's been one of the greatest difficulties with me evangelizing. I've been a pastor since August 2000. I have, from the beginning, loved evangelizing and speaking to sinners about the gospel. And you know what I find? A lot of people will start, but they give up pretty quickly. And you know why they give up? They give up because someone at church didn't let me have the chance I should have had. Someone at church didn't talk to me. Someone at church said this or that. The pastor went too long. They didn't wear the clothes I like. They didn't do this for my kids. Are we not petty? The angels are watching us and you care about the fact that they didn't do this or that for your kids in Sunday school? We are very weak people. And this prayer is for strength. And we need to know this because we are, first of all, a spiritual being. And it is that spiritual part of us that is more glorious than the physical part. Which is why people are insulted if you call them a dumb jock. If someone can play soccer, you get a lot of honor in the eyes of the world if you are Cristiano Ronaldo. But if you insulted Cristiano Ronaldo's intelligence, do you think you would say, oh, that's okay. I don't mind being stupid because I'm one of the greatest soccer players in the world. No, he'd be very angry because he's not content saying, yeah, I can handle my body. We all know if you can't handle your mind, then you get no honor at all. Aristotle said, the philosopher Aristotle said, If a man would be ashamed that he cannot defend himself with his hands, how much more ashamed should he be that he cannot defend himself with his words because his words come from his soul and he's more of a man in his soul than he ever is in his body. We are spiritual beings and that's why we need spiritual strength because that's what he says, right? To be strengthened with might by his spirit in what part of us? Look in your Bibles. In what part? In verse 16. We're going to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in what part? Yeah, it's our spirit that needs that strength. That's where we need it. I was encouraged when I read the biography of Hudson Taylor, and I found out that he wasn't very good at sports. I thought there's a place for me, and maybe there's a place for my kids. You see, when we are strong in God's power, it means that he has done a divine work It means that his spirit has been active in us. It's a spiritual work that takes place in our souls. 
It allows us to repent. It allows us to consistently repent. It allows us to study the word of God and find a growing interest in the Bible. It allows us to love Jesus and even to weep that we do not love him more. It allows us to fear God. It allows us to resist temptations. It allows us to speak sinners, speak to sinners, even though we feel busy and tired and stressed. And let me just ask you, of the things I've read to you, how many of those things are we commonly doing in our lives? Resisting temptations, growing day by day in our love for the Bible, speaking to sinners constantly, repenting every day. I'll just give one example from these. From Jonathan Edwards when he was 19. Jonathan Edwards was the great Puritan in America. um, Who at 19 years old wrote 70 resolutions. And one of them is resolved. At 19 years old he wrote this. Resolved. Anytime I find something difficult in the Bible. Immediately to attempt to study it out and understand it. As long as circumstances don't stop me. Is that us? Anytime you find something in scripture, are you saying to yourself, I'll drop anything until I can study it. Here's another one he said, resolved to so study the Bible that I will grow and plainly see myself growing in the knowledge of the Bible. So I ask, are we not only reading the Bible, but are we so plainly growing that we can see, wow, I know more about the Bible now than I did last year. You can ask yourself, if you're strong in the Lord, then you should be growing in your understanding of his word. If you've been strengthened in, his, in your inner man by his spirit, do you know what the common words of the Bible mean? Like propitiation or atonement, forgiveness or redemption. Do you know what election or foreknowledge or calling, glorification, do you know what these words mean? We ought to, if we're growing and if we're strong in the Lord. If we are strong in the Lord, it will be not difficult for us to compare our present life with heaven and to set our minds and our hearts on heaven, not on this present life. If we're growing in the Lord, we will experience discouragement and yet find a spiritual balance quickly. You and I could be compared to people riding in the back of a flatbed. And as it goes over bumps, you, you lose your balance. Here we are in life. And you're on this shaky world, flying through space. Hundreds of kilometers an hour. Thousands maybe it is. And as we're flying around in this world, things happen to us and we lose our balance. But if you're strong in the Lord, you'll gain your balance again quickly. If you're very weak, and your spiritual bones are brittle, you'll fall down And you won't get up. If you feel your weakness, then you should ask for this power. But this is only one. And if you only experienced that, if you were strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your soul, so you could fight with sin and overcome it, that would be an amazing blessing. But this prayer has more. Keep going. Look at the second one in verse 17. What's the second prayer? That... Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Fellowship with Christ. Apart from Christ, you had no hope. You were without God. Romans 5, 6 says, 
When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's two things that verse says about us before we were converted. Are you hearing this? Romans 5 verse 6. When we were without strength, number one, what did we have before we were converted? Or I'm sorry, not what did we have, what did we lack? Strength. Number two, we were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. That was our position. But now, in this prayer, the prayer that you're supposed to go pray, Colin, here it is. You're supposed to say, I pray that Christ would dwell in my hearts by faith. When the Philippians were born again, they were united to Christ. When the Ephesians were born again, they were united to Christ. When the Colossians, the Thessalonians, and when you were born again, you were united to Christ. Which means, before you were born again, you were not united from, with Christ. You were far from him. You were under God's wrath. I find the most difficult part of my ministry is to convince people that they were ever under God's wrath. They might want to say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, great. How do you know? I go to church. Were you ever a child of Satan? Oh, no. I've always gone to church. Was God ever so angry with you that he looked down from heaven and he thought of you as a child of Satan? Oh, no. Not me. Did he ever call you, as he says in Ephesians 2, verse 3, a child of anger? And that anger there is the anger of God. You're a child of God's anger. That's Ephesians 2, 3. Same book. But now, being united to Christ, we are bound up with him. Here's what our catechism says. Question number 57. How can faith in Jesus save you? That's catechism question 57. Here's the answer. Faith in Jesus unites the sinner with the Son of God so that he can never be judged. Romans 8 verse 1. Has that happened to you? Have you been tied up, bound up, bonded together with the Son of God so that you can never be separated? Here's a picture from building. You've got some cement. You put in the wheelbarrow and then you dump it out and you're pouring your slab. You float it out and there's, there's the cement starting to float out. And here is the, the cement. It's wet and it's falling down and you need to pour the next wheelbarrow right beside it and then float it. To be united with Christ is like your bucket of cement being poured out and then Christ's bonded together. But what will happen if the cement dries first? If one cement is dry and the other comes to bond, as soon as the rain comes or the wind or the weather, there'll be that crack down the middle. But if you pour it when they're both wet, they bond together. Union with Christ is like being mixed up together in that cement. You're so perfectly bonded. Or another, another uh, illustration, putting two plants in the same pot and letting them grow until their roots get intertwined. And then you try to separate them, you'll kill both plants. Union with Christ is like trying to separate plywood. You don't really have plywood over here. If you do, it's very expensive. Plywood in the U.S. is where they'll take thin strips of wood and they'll laminate it together and so form wood that you'll build houses with. And you can't tear that plywood apart if you try to separate the layers, thin little layers all glued together. And if you try to separate those layers, the layers themselves will snap. Or another picture from humanity, the divorce of a husband and wife after 20 years. 
it tears both of them apart and the kids. Union with Christ is that bonding, that tying together where two become one. It's what Paul means when he says, in Christ, in Christ. A number of years ago when I was reading my New Testament, I began to put a black box around every time the Bible says, in Christ or in him. The word in and then some reference to Jesus, referring to how Christians are bound in Christ. It's all over the place. It's in the Gospels. It's in Paul's epistles. It's in Peter. It's in John. All over the Bible wants us to know, what are you? You're in him. You're bound to him. You're tied up to him. And that's the prayer right here. Pray that Christ would dwell in your heart by faith. This dwelling is the experience of knowing him. This experience is the one that we memorized last year from Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3. That list of eight descriptions of who he is. He is the heir of all things. He is the one who made the world by the word of his power. He is the one who by himself purged our sins. By himself. I love that Greek word in there. Not just he purged our sins. He did it without your help. Without anyone's help. And if a priest wants to mumble jumble his his, uh, prayers and his extra grace onto Christ. You say no thank you. He did it by himself. You don't need the pastors or the baptismal font. You don't need the priest or the church. He did it by himself. He's the one who is heir of all things. He's also the image The exact imprint of the divine nature. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. Jonathan Edwards said this. I'm going to use this over and over. If you've already heard it, please forgive me. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said in his essay on the Trinity, he says, if a man could have a perfect understanding of every thought that went through his mind for a given period of time, let's say an hour, and every thought every impulse, every reflection, every memory, every decision and movement of his will could be exactly remembered and duplicated. If he could have an exact duplicate of himself during that time period, he would, for that time period, be two. He would be double. There would be more than one of that man if every single thought could be duplicated for that time. And he said... That is what the Son of God is. The Father had all of his perfect thoughts and impulses and loves and desires and motions of his will. And here we see a second perfect copy. Hebrews 1 verse 2. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature and the radiance of his glory. And that is what it means that the Father begets the Son. Wow, are you amazed We are going to be enjoying that and learning that and understanding that for all eternity. And I think somehow we'll be able to taste it and hear it and see it. And all of that is this one that we we can live in him and he in us. And Paul says, pray, pray, pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. He dwells in the heart. There's no place more intimate. He doesn't dwell in the foot. He certainly doesn't dwell only in the head. He dwells in your heart because it's the seat of everything you hold most dear. If a young man wants to impress a young lady and attract her attention 
If he wants to get her to say yes to his proposal for marriage, he does not say, I think so well of you, you've made it into my stomach. He doesn't say, I've been watching you for a year now and I've got you in my head. The heart is the seat of the deepest intimacy that God has made in man. And here he says, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. Can it be the most pleasing, happiest place in all of your created glory? Christ will stay there. Yes, it is. It's too good to be true. And notice that he dwells there through faith. It is this golden virtue. That's the way John Bunyan portrays it in the Holy War. He has the captain faith be the captain who's able to go and hold special meetings with Prince Emmanuel. And the Lord High Secretary, who is the picture of the Holy Spirit. Only Captain Faith can do that. And it's maybe coming from right here. Christ dwells in your heart by this faith, by this reaching out. Friends, faith is only temporary. And it's weak. We walk by faith, not by sight. There is coming a time when sight will replace faith. Love will go on into all eternity, which is what we're about to see. But faith is short term. So is evangelism. You better do all of your believing right now. Because when you die, no more chance to believe. And you better lead sinners to Jesus now because that also is going to end. We're going to walk by sight in heaven, not by faith. John Owen says it's a weaker exercise of the mind. But God has us walk by faith now so that we would be at our very weakest and his strength would be shown to be the strongest. Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly right. And he has to dwell in your hearts by faith. And when you say, I don't understand, it's too hard. Caleb, you've been asking me some difficult questions recently. And if some of my answers, you don't sit well in your mind and you say, I don't know if those answers are the best. I just tell you, lay hold of the words of the Bible by faith. Because he will dwell in your heart in that way. Oh, there is so much here. This dwelling, as I've mentioned already, is pictured in the Holy War. One of my favorite books, top five. And now Imitation of Christ is going in there. Imitation of Christ and Holy War are in my top five most influential books ever. And here's the part from Holy War that I wrote it out at length in the notes. Let me just read this to you. Prince Emmanuel enters Hart Castle. That's when the man is converted. But then after time, man's soul sins against Prince Emmanuel. And so slowly, Prince Emmanuel withdraws himself. Prince Emmanuel invited them to come to the castle and eat with him. The prince says, come eat with me. Every day I have an open invitation for anyone in the town. Come eat with me. But they didn't come. So then he would go out and visit them. But he found sometimes that they were bored with his visits. And so slowly he backs off because of their lack of faith. Union with Christ may not be lost, but the fellowship depends on our close devotion. We can lose this close fellowship. We cannot lose union with Christ. 
but we can lose our close fellowship, the joy that we had. Well, they have Christ dwelling in their hearts. Whenever they find joy in talking and thinking about his works, his person, his second coming, they have Christ living in their hearts who would gladly trade the whole world just for the chance to serve him. Like David Livingston, who after serving Christ for all of his life, said, I never made a sacrifice. Hudson Taylor said something very similar. After serving for almost 50 years in China and seeing his wife die and his children and seeing hundreds and thousands of Chinese converted, Taylor said, I never made a sacrifice. How can you call it a sacrifice when you give up something small to get something great? You don't call it a sacrifice when you exchange five rand for a new Bucky. We call them dwelling near to Christ who have put to death their sins. We call those ones, those who are dwelling in Christ when they cannot be shaken by hardship. Friends, if Christ only would dwell in your heart, you would be the most blessed of men. Now imagine what this is. You're now strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then this second blessing is given to you. Christ is dwelling in your heart and you have this experience of love and joy with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this passage, famously preaching over 250 sermons from this book for about six years, I believe. And on this passage, as he was preaching on it, he said, this may be the sweetest passage in all the Bible. And when he finished it and he goes to chapter four, he said, some of you will undoubtedly be sorry that we've left one of the greatest passages in the Bible. And he said it largely because of what I'm explaining right here with dwelling, Christ dwelling in your hearts. But there is more and it builds on the last. And I am tempted to think this is more glorious than all that has come to this point. As if each one is getting higher and higher. Look at the third request. It's in verse 17. That you would be rooted and grounded in what? Remember, faith is temporary, but love is eternal. Which is why Jonathan Edwards wrote in his book on love, he wrote, the final chapter is called Heaven, a world of love. Not a world of faith. Faith's going to end when we have sight, but love never will end. And we need to be so rooted and grounded in love now because if you aren't content in the love of God now, you will be out of place in heaven. As C.S. Lewis pictures it in his book, The Great Divorce, which is a bad book, one of C.S. Lewis's only bad books. But there's this great illustration. He pictures um, men, as, as it were, going to heaven and riding on a bus and when they, they want to go to heaven, but they're not born again. And so in his picture, he says, the doors open on the bus and they step out and put their feet on the grass. And immediately they feel that the grass is too hard and it pierce, pierces their feet like knives. They step back in the bus and then suddenly a bug, just a little uh, a fly flies by them and lands on their arm and throws them to the ground because the fly is too heavy. The air is too thick for them to breathe. The colors hurt their eyes when they look. That might be, that, 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 that's probably the best thing in that whole book, The Great Divorce by Lewis. So now you don't need to read the book. I just gave you the best thing. 
<clears throat> Here it is in verse 17. He wants you to be rooted and grounded in love. What kind of love? Look at verse 18. So that you would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. This request is built on this foundation. They're rooted and grounded. Literally having been rooted, having been grounded in love. This happened long ago and the effects are still with you today. When you were born again, something had to change in your loves. And if you never changed at the time when you said you were becoming a Christian, if you never changed from hatred of God to love for God, a deep love for God. Again, as, as uh, Hopeful says in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I felt when I was born again that if I had a thousand lives, I could lay them all down for Christ. If you've never experienced love like that, maybe you've never been rooted and grounded in it. To be converted is to have this foundation of this rooting. Your roots are gone down deep into him. The foundation is laid. The love is there. Believers don't ask to be rooted and grounded. That foundation has already happened to them when they believed in Christ. Now based on that foundation, in comes the request. In other words, here's a paraphrase. Thirdly, I'm asking that since you've been rooted and grounded in love, I want you to also have this third thing. True believers have a root unlike false believers. Do you remember our Lord's parable in Matthew chapter 13, the four soils? How do you know the second one is false? Because he has no root. So as soon as hard times come, he withers in the sun. He had no root. Oh, he talked good. In fact, Matthew 13 says he receives the word with joy. He says amen and hallelujah. He'll sing. He'll come to church. He has no problem doing those things. But when hardship comes, he doesn't have any strength. That's our first prayer request. He, Christ is not dwelling in his faith. He has no experience of the love of God for him. And number three, he's not really rooted and grounded in love. So how could he stay? It's not possible. Matthew 15, verse 13, a very heavy line. Perhaps you've read it before and never pondered it. Listen to this word, Matthew 15, verse 13. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. That is a heavy line from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we have this foundation, this rooting. But now notice that there are two verbs, and both verbs speak to the mind. The one is this, you need to be able to comprehend. Do you see that in verse 18? Comprehend. And look at verse 19. What's the second verb? It's in verse 19. The first verb is comprehend. What's the second one? No. You can, if you want, you can hook those two together. They're in the same request, the third request. And you can hook them together. Paul's saying, now, here's what I want you to do. I want your mind to be able to Get, get your mind around this concept. I want you to know something. What do you have to know? What do you have to comprehend? Ah, that's the great things. That's what really needs to happen. You need to comprehend things and know things. Brothers and sisters, the Christian faith is a rational faith. We live in an era where people believe that true religion should be irrational. I have a book on my shelf written by a South African, telling us how to interpret dreams and visions. And in that book, 
There are page after page of irrational explanations. If you dream and in your dream you see a frog, then you're supposed to think this. And if you see a fish, you're supposed to think that. On what basis? What rational basis means if you see an alligator or a crocodile that you're supposed to think this or that? I think the crocodile was a bad business venture. Is that, do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, Caleb read it for me. Thanks, buddy. My research assistant. If you see the crocodile upstream, it's a bad financial decision. If you see the crocodile downstream, it's a good financial decision. I'll tell you, I, my worst dreams are seeing crocodiles, and I've had many of them. That's terrible. But I will say this. When I wake up, I don't say in the morning, now let me direct my life by that, by that, by that dream. Are the... <clears throat> One of the errors of the 20th century, and most of this has come from America, is this idea that we have an irrational religion. Oh, God, save us from an irrational religion. Jesus Christ is the Word. He gave us a large Bible. It's much larger than the Quran, much larger than the Hindu Veda scriptures. It's larger than the Old Testament. He wants us to think. He wants us to use our minds. And here Paul says, I'm praying that you could comprehend and know things. No, the Bible does not have a low view of the human mental faculties. The Bible does not want us to undermine our abilities to think clearly. The Bible gives us a religion that challenges the circular errors of Hinduism, the anti-empirical teachings of Buddhism, the historical and philosophical contradictions of Islam. And you're not going to be able to face up and handle the evil false religions that are around us, if we don't gird up the loins of your mind, as Peter says, use your brain, think, but use it in submission to God. Liberalism said, the brain should be our king. Paul never says that. God is our king, but with God as the king, use your brain and your mind in submission to him, and you will be a faithful and honest Christian. Well, he wants us to have this ability to comprehend something. Look down in your Bibles at verse 17. What does he want us to comprehend? It's written in verse 17 and then again in verse 19. Once each for each of the verbs. Because there's two verbs. Comprehend and know. He wants you to comprehend. Do you see the word love in verse 17? It's the last word. Do you see love in verse 19? You can connect those to the two verbs. He wants you to comprehend love and he wants you to know love. Well, that would be a good thing to do because God is love. That would be helpful for us because we live in a very unloving world. Our minds are so small. Our minds are littered with foolish thoughts And distracted thoughts, as Neil Postman says in his excellent book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and in his even better book, Technopoly, in those two books, Neil Postman says, our danger today is that the river has expanded, and you're standing in the middle of it, and the river is information. So yes, there's true churches out there. Yes, there are good books out there. The problem is there's so many books. There's so many ideas. There's so many schools. There's so many ideas. There's so much coming at you. You can't find the good ones. If you tried to count up all the thoughts that come to the average person in this town through TV and radio, through their eyes, through their sight, through their phones, 
In one day, the number of thoughts, total thoughts, that come to a person is overwhelming. We are being washed away in a flood of triviality. Things that simply aren't relevant. And then there's a few lines of truth here and there. But it just gets swept along with the flood. And the wise man, the specially blessed man, is the man who grabs on to that valuable thing as it's going by in the flood. But most men are not that way. I think that way sometimes when I give out flyers. And I'll talk to him. Just yesterday, when we were evangelizing, I met, a, I met a man over here that I have a Bible study with. And he said, oh, I'm going to hell. I know I'm lost. And I said, talk to him for a moment about the gospel. And I gave him the flyer. And I thought as I left, this man is in amazing danger. And he doesn't know it. Because I just gave him one piece of information. But he's probably got a phone that's going to give him 20 more pieces of information before I even get to my house. And it's going to come Sunday morning. And he said, oh, where was that paper? And there it is floating down the stream. And by Monday, I had that paper, didn't I? And by Thursday, he'll have forgotten. If I don't. But that's what it is to be a soul winner. I'm going to chase him down. Because I now know where he works. And I know where he lives. And I'm going to chase him down and try to get him. But you see, that's what the difficulty is. And we need to know and comprehend the right things. Paul prays that our room would be cleansed out <clears throat> so that the best thoughts would fit. Imagine your mind like a warehouse. But here's the problem. Your warehouse needs to fit expensive Italian tiles because you've just started a tile company and you want to sell these tiles because you know everyone likes those big ones. I mean, tiles this big. Have you seen these? What's the largest tile you've ever seen? People have these huge tiles. I thought, how in the world did they have four people just to put this tile down? You need four tiles for the room and it's done. So here you are. You started your tile store. You've got your warehouse. And you, you just rented it. It's on, the, it's on this uh, place over here, the south side, the industrial park. You rented your warehouse. You say, now I'm ready. And then you open the doors and you say, oh man, someone filled this with these uh, COVID-19 masks. Oh, these masks are fine and all, but I, I need room for my tile. So in comes the first truck. And, and you all, there's crates and crates of these things. Get the forklift, move these things around. And they just push one of the boxes of tiles over here, one of the boxes over there, one of them over there. And the warehouse is huge. And then in comes a customer. I, it's here, it's here. Before you know it, the customer walked off. He said, ah, burn the masks, burn the, I gotta find this tile. How am I supposed to find this to run my business? That's the way your mind is. And you've been filling your mind with everything on the TV and everything in life and everything she said and what he said. And then the 50 thoughts that you thought that you replayed incorrectly. And all these things are cluttering up your mind. And then here comes the Bible message. Here you come and read the Bible in the morning. And that's going to squeeze into that warehouse too. And then later on, while you're driving your car, someone cuts in front of you. And what you need at that time is you need the verse you read that morning. Love your enemies. That's what you need. Pray for those who despitefully cut you off. That's the verse. That's my paraphrase. You need that verse that says pray for the people who cut you off. And you know what? You can't even find it. 
because you read your Bible six hours ago and here you are in the afternoon and your warehouse is jammed. Paul says, you need to have that warehouse cleaned out because the natural man is not able to understand the things of God's spirit. You need to get renovating. We need expanded capacity. That's what he says in verse uh, 17. You'd be rooted in ground. I'm sorry, verse 18. So you'd be able to comprehend That ability to comprehend is an opening up of your mind. You need to have your mind opened up. You simply are unable unless you go and pray for it. Do you ever think of yourself as unable? We don't like to do that, do we? Sometimes we're sinners. Sometimes we make mistakes. but We never think of ourselves as unable. Paul here says you need to pray that you would be able to comprehend we need expanded capacity because the love of Christ is beyond us. You've never noticed this, have you? Did you, did you notice this in verse 18? How many dimensions are there in verse 18? There's four. How many dimensions are there in the real world? Length, width, and height. But here he wants you to know something that's out of this world. He wants you to be able to think about something that you can't think about. You can't think about it because you're not able. Oh, pray to him. Oh, God, come. Give me some kind of ability to understand a four-dimensional object. Are there four dimensions? There are. The fourth one is time. Length, width, height, and time. That's the way we live, right? We live in, in four dimensions. Not only do you have this way and that way and up and down, but you also have minutes and moments passing by all the time. Paul says, I want you to pray that you could grasp something that's beyond you. This world of love is different. It's unique. You're going to be exploring a world with four dimensions for all eternity. There are vast subterranean caves in this glorious world that you can dive down under and find gems and jewels. There are mountains and waterfalls. There are oceans and islands. There are trees and fruits. We know there are because in Revelation 22, it says the tree of life bears 12 different kinds of fruits at the same time. Wouldn't you like to see a tree that can bear different fruits at the same time? And whatever they are in heaven, they're going to be better than here in the Shadowlands. Well, do you have the eyes to see these unusual glories? The love of Christ overwhelms us. It passes our knowledge. It's beyond us. It surpasses us because it is love to those who do not deserve it. It surpasses us because it it began before time. It continues uninterrupted into eternity. It surpasses us because it is constant regardless of our failures. 2 Timothy 2.13 Though we are faithless, yet he remains faithful. It surpasses us because it is an offering that we could never have considered or devised had it not been shown us. Remember 1 John chapter 4 We love him because he first loved us. Those who know the love of Christ set their eyes on him at all times. Those who know the love of Christ devote themselves to his bride since he died to save her. If Christ loved the church and you love Christ, what will you also love? 
Those who know the love of Christ trust in him without any confidence in their flesh. Those who know the love of Christ rejoice and sing because the most beautiful of all subjects is in front of them. And that's straight from 1 Peter 1.8. They have a surpassing happiness. What do we do when we are overwhelmed with happiness? We naturally sing. Even those of us who can't carry a tune. What would we be like if we knew all day and thought constantly on the love of Christ? Well, in closing, the fullness of God, it builds up and gets even greater. Look at verse 19. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. There's four requests here. The fullness of God. Friends, we will either be full of God or full of sin. Those are the only options. All of God or all of sin in your heart. Matthew 12, 43 through 45 gives us that picture of the man who had a demon and the demon was cast out and because he was not filled with the spirit of God, seven more demons worse than the previous came in and took over. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says, there is eternity in our hearts. That means our hearts are broad and open, grasping after something worthy and we set our hearts on sin, lust, Greed, covetousness, the things of the earth. To be full of God is the highest end of any man. Because Second Peter 1 says that you might be made partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter 1, 4 is a cross-reference here. Filled up with all the fullness of God or made partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? It means somehow there is a bonding and a binding with Christ so that his nature actually comes into us. It is not that we have the unshared attributes of God as the wicked and foolish religion of prosperity teaches. The wicked religion of prosperity teaches that you can have the omnipotence of Christ or the omniscience of Christ. No, those are the unshared attributes of God. He does not share his sovereignty. He does not share his omniscience. He does not share his infinity with us. But he does share his love with us, his holiness with us, his grace with us. Something in his shared attributes can come down to us. This is too much for us. My words are too small. I I can't explain it even in an hour I'm trying to give metaphors and pictures about waterfalls and fruits and glory and joy. But everything I say is too weak. It needs an artist. It needs a really good artist to write the perfect song to somehow communicate. Because maybe music's the best way to communicate it. Even paintings couldn't get it. Because music is the most abstract of all the art forms. Sculpture and painting are always going to say, oh, look back to the earth. But I'm trying to get you out of the earth and say, no, somehow go right into the mind of God. Because that's what it means to be filled up with the fullness of God. Have you ever heard a piece of music that was so powerful and overwhelming, it almost felt like you were being pulled out of yourself? Something like that. Something like that might be the beginning of it. Which is why all the way through Revelation, there's instruments of music and there's singing. Because somewhere in heaven, the musicians are going to have a special place, Amy. There is this fullness of God. And it will be experienced and known and loved and enjoyed by us. And to be full of God is to be full now of the right thoughts of him. He neither has a body nor is he extended in space. 
When we are filled up with God, he means our minds are filled up with thoughts about him, which is why we need to study theology. And here's my advert for the class coming up. Lord willing, in February, we're going to begin our theology class again. We're going to do theology proper, the doctrine of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We want, us to be, we want our hearts and minds to be filled with the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, close with this tonight. <clears throat> this fullness of God. Is often deceptive. Because many people believe that they are filled with God. When they are really filled with an idol. <clears throat> King Saul talked about repentance. In front of David. In 1 Samuel 24, 16, he promised to repent, but he never repented. Samson did not even know that God had departed from him. Peter promised that he would never deny Christ and then denied him. We make mistakes all the time. And many people think they're full of God when they're really full of their own projection of what they wish God were. But when you make a projection of what you wish God were, that's an idol. So do you pray this way? Have these prayers been answered for you? I want to encourage you, pray in this way. I believe it's next month that we're doing this prayer in our, in our book schedules. So next month in February's slot, I'm going to put this passage on. And we're going to pray these four requests. And I hope we can all say, God has answered me. He's given me the answer to my prayers. May he help us to be strong. <clears throat> May he help us to have Christ dwell in our hearts. May he help us to know what can't be known, the love of Christ. May he give us the fullness of God himself. Lord Jesus, we do love you, and we pray that you would forgive us for not loving you enough. We do know you, and we pray that you would forgive us for not knowing you as you ought to be known. We do enjoy you and we pray that you would forgive us for not taking more pleasure in you. We know that you want to be enjoyed and we, we find some pleasure and then turn away back to the world. Forgive us. We are the most distracted, the weakest of all people. So tonight we pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man. We pray that you would dwell in our hearts by faith. We pray that you would cause us to be able to understand this incomprehensible love. We pray that you would fill us up with God himself. In Jesus' name, amen.